the Book of Judges, a dark time in Israel's history, a pattern of failure, failure to follow God's law, failure to train up the next generation, failure to remember and celebrate God's faithfulness. We may be tempted to see the judges as heroes of the faith. However, the only hero of this story is God himself. The people of God chose the pleasures of sin over the promises of God, and the story of Judges is our story as well. In a desperately wicked and fallen world, the book of Judges reveals both the disgrace of sin and the deliverance only God can provide. In the library of my school, there are these kids' magazines, and when you got to the back page, I would never read the magazine, I would just go to the back page, there'd always be this bright, colorful picture with this phrase at the top that said, what's wrong with this picture? You guys ever see those? And it's filled with artwork like this, it's filled with absurdities and oddities, and the question was, can you find everything that's wrong with this picture? There would be pictures of ducks watching TVs on rooftops, there'd be pictures of chickens swimming in a pond, there'd be pictures of broom handles in a refrigerator, and you need to go through without circling it, because it's not your magazine, to find all the oddities in this picture, and I share this with you because I'm convinced that the author of Judges had this in mind when he wrote the end of Judges chapter 8 and Judges chapter 9. Because what he has for us is a picture, a portrait of absurdities and oddities, and he's counting on us to be able to find each and every one of those so we can remember the depths of disgrace that comes with sin, but as he always does, remind us of the powerful deliverance of God as well. Let me show you, if you have your Bibles, we are in the book of Judges, and we're going to begin in chapter 8. I know we're supposed to go through Judges 9, but if we don't really understand the end of chapter 8, we're not going to understand fully the depths and disgrace of chapter 9. So as we go into the days of Abimelech, it really begins at Judges chapter 8. Verse 28, because if you want to understand the days of Abimelech, you first have to understand the end of the days of Gideon. The last two weeks, we were learning about the days of Gideon, and Gideon started out so good. I mean, he was the weakest, I mean, one of the most popular. He was the weakest person of a weakest family, of the weakest tribe, of a defeated nation, and God chose him to do a miraculous work of deliverance. And people love it because it's a reminder to us that God doesn't choose the powerful. He doesn't choose the mighty. He doesn't choose the brilliant. Oftentimes, almost always, he chooses the foolish things of this world. The weak. The underdog. So that when people see his work, no man can boast. But everyone can recognize the power of God. And we love the story of Gideon. Unfortunately, the story of Gideon doesn't end there. At the end of Gideon's days, he turns into a tyrant. 
an idolater. Look how he, he finishes. Look how the book of Judges describes the end of Gideon. Judges chapter 8, starting at verse 28. Because we really gain, there's our first point, this grim picture. We gain this, this grim picture, Judges chapter 8, starting at verse 28. Look what it says. So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads anymore, and the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. It paused there. If, you, if you're someone who writes in your Bibles, underline that last sentence, the land was undisturbed. You're not going to see it anymore, the book of Judges. No more rest. No more peace. After Gideon, God takes the world and spins it. It makes it even worse. Verse 29, Then Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, Jerubbabel, also a name of Gideon, son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Look how he describes it. Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son and named him Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. So let's hit pause because you might have a tendency to just read through that and say, okay, Brian, great, let's get to chapter nine. But what this paints to you is a grim picture I want to make sure that you understand. It's filled with absurdities and oddities that I want to make sure you understand. First of all, let's go back to verse 30 because it talks about Gideon, right? The champion of God who turned out to be a tyrant who ended his life as a tyrant, an idolater. When the people asked him to be king, they say, Gideon, rule over us. Have dominion over us. Exercise your authority over us. And Gideon gave the right words. I'm not going to rule over you. God's ruling over you. God is your king. God is your ruler. He is your authority. He is your power. He is your defender. And after, at first, when Gideon says that, you're like, yes, Gideon, yes. But then we recognize that his life doesn't match that. That Gideon is one who says the right things, but lives differently. Remember, he took a portion of their spoils, formed an ephod, a cloak meant for the high priest, and Gideon put it in his hometown and used it so that he could become the mouthpiece of God. Wrestled that authority, wrestled that, that opportunity away from God and took that upon himself. But it continues, verse 30, now Gideon had 70 sons. Now I want to tell you, as a parent of four sons, I just want to make sure y'all understand how crazy that is. Four sons is exhausting. Feeding four sons is impossible. Gideon had 70. He had 70 sons who were his direct descendants. How did he do that? Well, he had many wives. That phrase, many wives, doesn't give us an exact number. It just says there's an abundant number, an excessive amount of wives. There was a recent study done. Well, how many wives does it take to birth 70 sons? We're not even counting daughters. 
How many wives? Minimum 14. Minimum 14. I mean, Gideon, although he says, hey, I'm not your king, certainly living like a king. Give me your portion. Give me a portion of your spoils. I'm going to speak as an authoritative voice over you. He has 14 wives, 70 sons. Verse 31, he has a concubine. Concubine, in case you're not familiar, was an active formal role within a polygamous culture. Although a concubine had few rights, fewer rights than a wife, she was usually known by the wives. She had a specific role within the family dynamic, focusing on being an instrument of pleasure for the husband. Not only a minimum of 14 wives, 70 sons, who knows how many daughters, he also had a concubine. As we look at the end of Gideon's life, I would say that it would be agreeable that we all understand he did not finish as a reflection of the glory of God he served. Let's keep going into this grim picture. Not only was there Gideon, but Gideon, through his concubine, after his 70 legitimate sons and his 14-plus wives, his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son and named him Abimelech. You might say, oh, well, Brian, in our culture, that happens. That's how it goes. I want to make sure you understand that term Abimelech, what it means. The term Abimelech means my father is the king. Abimelech, my father is the king. Here's what's happening. See, he has 70 sons. They have rights. They're heirs to the fortune, to the power, to the kingdom of Gideon. But not Abimelech. He's the bastard son. He's the illegitimate. Gideon couldn't give him things that he gave his other sons. So what he gave him was a title. What he gave him was a name. But I'm like, I can't give you what I give my other son, so I'll give you this. Every time someone calls your name, every time they look at you, they will know whose you are. You are the son of Gideon. You are the child of the king. Although Gideon said the right things. I'm not your king, God's your king. He did not live it. The end of the days of Gideon ended with him being a tyrant, an idolater. Basic definition of the word, an adulterer. Named his son Abimelech as the title, betrays his true heart and belief about who he was and how he lived. He continued to go into this grim picture. I want to make sure you understand where Abimelech came from. See, Gideon had a concubine who was in Shechem. Now we have Gideon, a clear picture of who he is. You have Abimelech. My father is the king, a betrayer of the heart of Gideon. All this is happening in the city of Shechem. Shechem is a famous city with a very mixed history. 
Shechem is the first place Abraham stopped after entering Canaan after being called by God and promised that he would be made into a a blessing to the nations. Shechem is also the place where God renewed his covenant with the people of Israel, promising to be their God and to make them into a great nation and a blessing to the world if only they will be faithful to him. Shechem is also known as the final resting place for the bones of Joseph. Shechem has a rich history. But aside from all those, Shechem is most notably known for the man who raped Dinah, a daughter of Jacob. Not to be gratuitous, but I think it's important because this goes into the history of the passage coming up. Put your thumb or your little thing there in and, and Judges 9. Flip over with me, if you will, Genesis chapter 34. Shechem has a mixed history, much good, but also much bad. Genesis 34 We're starting verse 1. We're just going to read through it. There's not a whole lot that I have to say about it. It's pretty self-explanatory. Let's just read through it together. Genesis 34, starting in verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. That's Bible talk for raped her. Verse 3. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved her and spoke tenderly to her. Let me just hit pause for a moment. Anyone else think that's a little whacked? (laughs) Like I would expect that to at least go before verse 2. You take her by force and they say, wow, I really like you, and you start being nice. That's nuts. I underline that and I put seriously in the margin. Because if anyone ever steals my Bible, I want to make sure that they note that. (laughs) Verse 4, so Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob in in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and they were very, very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing ought not to be done. Huh, really interesting. Verse eight, but Hamor spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. He's a good boy. He loves her. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us. Sure, that's not going to happen, right? Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, if I find favor in your sight, like, really? Like our relationship's done at this point, right? If I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as you say to me, but give me this girl in marriage. 
Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor at the seat because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you, if you will become like us, and that every male of you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and take your daughters for ourselves. We will live with you and become one people, but if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Verse 18, now their words seem reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. Again, underline that and wrote seriously on the side. Like, I don't want to get into the details, but that's going to hurt. Let's jump ahead to the story. Verse 24. All who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate on his city had to stay home that day. Verse 25. Now it came about on the third day when they were all in pain. That two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword, came upon the city unawares, and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword, took Dinah from Shechem's house, and went forth. Jacob's sons came under the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys, that which was in the city, that which was in the field, and they captured and looted all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and my, and my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? And the story continues. When you look at this grim picture back in Judges chapter 8, you have Gideon, you have Abimelech that betrays the true heart of Gideon, you have a concubine who is in Shechem, and although this was generations before, Genesis, that story in Genesis was generations before, there's still a lack of trust, and it's still an issue to this day in Judges 8. It's going to come back and bite them in Judges chapter 9. This grim picture, you have Gideon, you have Abimelech, you have Shechem, everything that the author is expecting you to know when you're reading this. Your ears are perking up, but there's still one part of the grim picture. Let's look at Judges chapter 8, verse 33. Then it came about, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal bereath their God. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the household of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in accord with all the good that he had done in Israel. Fourth part of this grim picture, their new God, Baal bereath. Baal bereath, by the way, Here's what it means. It means the Lord of the covenant. I want to make sure you understand what the author is saying. See, they already had a Lord of the covenant. and made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. They renewed that covenant, ironically, 
in Shechem. Remember that? God said, if you will just follow me, everyone will experience the love and protection of a family and a home. Everyone will have success in their life. No one will experience these awful, horrid diseases. You'll be my people. I'll be your God. You will never experience defeat. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you have nothing to fear. God is with you. All you need to do is be faithful to me. That is my covenant, God says, with you. They had Lord of the Covenant. Judges wants to make sure you understand they kicked that God and that covenant to the curb, made up their own God, lowercase g, and a new covenant. They gave up the God who rescued them from Egypt, parted the Red Sea, rained food from heaven, water from rocks, quail from bushes. The God who made the sun stand still, they gave it all away. Once Gideon died, the wheels fell off the cart. Not only did they forget God, they traded him in for a false god. They would choose a fake covenant over the true covenant. And just to add insult to injury, they also abandoned the family of Gideon. That grim picture, that setting, that's the foundation for chapter 9. I mean, you got to know, with all that's going on, chapter 9 is not going to be good. That grim picture sets the stage then for what's next, a hostile takeover. Let's begin. Oh, before let me do that. Yeah. Chapter 9, verse 1. A hostile takeover. Look what happens. Read the first two verses. And Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives, spoke to them and to the whole clan of the household of his mother's, saying to the people of Shechem, speak now in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that 70 men, all the sons of Jerubbabel, rule over you, or that one man rule over you. Also remember that I am your bone and your flesh. So I guess Gideon, who said, I'm not the king, but set up this sham of a kingdom and claimed kingdom through naming Abimelech, had 70 sons. There was going to be some sort of kingdom sharing amongst the descendants of Gideon. So Abimelech, all he has is a name. He has no inheritance. He has no claim. Goes to the people of Shechem and says, who are you going to trust? Those people? You remember last time we trusted people of God? All the men kind of crossed their legs and, yes, we remember. Remember the last time we trusted them? They killed the men. They looted the city. Abimelech says, you want to trust them again? What's better for you? You want to rule, be ruled by them or me? I'm one of you. 
You know, he's half one of them, but he's not saying that. I'm one of you. Which is better for you? That you're led by those people who betrayed you once before? Or me? I'm Abimelech, the son of the king. Verse 3, his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem, and they were inclined to allow Abimelech, for they said, he is our relative. Hey, he's at least like us. He knows us. He understands us. They gave him 70 pieces of silver from the house of Belbereth. They gave him offering from the fake God of the fake covenant with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows, and they followed him. Just for fun, worthless and reckless fellows, those two words combined are used to describe a group of men who don't even qualify as mercenaries. They are nothing more than troublemakers and busybodies from town that Abimelech pays and turns them into mercenaries. And look what they did. Verse 7. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, verse 5. Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah, killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. 70 men. Most believe chopped off their head on the same spot. One right after the other, after another, after another, after another. Count 70. He and these worthless fellows for a piece of silver each, I want you to know. He definitely inherited his father's love for violence. But look, big biblical but, next word. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left for he hid. They counted 70. They got an extra one in there somewhere. All the men of Shechem and all Beth Milo assembled together and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar which is in Shechem. They kill all the descendants of Gideon or so they think. And then they gather at this valley by this famous tree at the foot of a mountain to coronate Abimelech as their king. And the great picture continues Verse 7, when they told Jotham, he went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and called out, as all the people are down in the valley, ready to coronate their king, Jotham, the only living descendant of Gideon, climbs on the side of the mountain on a bluff, using God's natural sound amplifier of creation and he gives a great parable. I love this. As everyone's listening, this is what he says. He says, listen to me, O men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Once the trees went forth to anoint a king to reign over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my fatness which with God and men are honored and go to wave, our tr go to wave over trees? Who he gives this great parable. He says, y'all are like a bunch of trees looking for someone to lead you. These trees first went to an olive tree. Olive trees to produce, uh, produces riches and honor for the people. The mighty olive tree reign over us. Olive tree says, not me. I'm content with what God gives me. I'm going to stay like I am. Verse 10, then the tree said to the fig tree, 
the fig tree, the tree of enjoyment and joy, that great fruit. He said to the fig tree, you come. You're our second choice. Lucky you. Come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go to wave over the trees? Look, I'm content with what God gives me. I have far more than I deserve. No thanks. Verse 12, then the tree said to the vine, the grapevine, the producer of comfort and pleasure, you're our third choice. Lucky you, come, reign over us. The vine said to them, shall I leave my new wine which cheers God and men and go wave over trees? I'm content with what God's allowed me to have. No thanks. Verse 14, finally, all the trees, finally, all the trees said to the bramble, bramble, a nice word for thorn bush, tumbleweed. They bypassed all the great trees, so they go to a tumbleweed. You come reign over us. The bramble said to the trees, if in truth you are anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, May fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. They go after the olive tree, fig tree, grapevine. No one wants to lead. They go to a thorn bush. I want to make sure you understand what Jotham is saying. You're giving up God for a tumbleweed. Like you'd rather a tumbleweed rule over you than the God of all creation. A tumbleweed who is more than happy to rule over you. Look what he says. Hey, yeah, I'm in. That sounds great. I'll be in charge. Come, take refuge in my shade. Anyone ever try to get shade from a tumbleweed? Or never try to get comfort from a thorn bush? It's laughable. This is absurd. Jotham's like, you guys are nuts. You gave up God for a tumbleweed. But look at the tumbleweed too. Look at his gall. Yeah, come hang out with me. But if you don't follow me, I'm going to burn us all down. You see that? I'm going to light myself on fire and I'll take you all down with me. Jotham, as all the people are preparing to anoint Abimelech as king, Jotham comes up and says, y'all are like these trees. Trading in God for a thorn bush and a tumbleweed that's going to hold you hostage and burn everything down when you disagree with him. And we look at that and we say, oh, how foolish. People of Shechem weren't the only. Many, many generations later, Messiah walked the earth. Near the end of his ministry, this happened. Luke chapter 23. Let me just read it to you. Luke 23. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, 
I will punish him and release him. Now he was uh, obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner, but they cried out, look at this. And the Messiah, they prayed for centuries for. But they cried out altogether, away with this man and release for us Barabbas, a murderous political zealot. He was the one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. We choose a murderous zealot over the Messiah. We look and we say, oh, how foolish. But they weren't the only ones. Gospel of John shows us the religious leaders. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judgment seat at a, at a, at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. And look what they cried out. This is the Messiah they prayed for for centuries. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? Listen to their response. The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. What? The oppressor of their people. Now we, we choose a thorn bush over God. And we look at that. And we think, how foolish. That is going through our culture. Are they the only ones? We love the judge of people of Shechem. We love the judge, the people of Jesus' day. But how often have we entrusted our lives, our future, and our hopes? We place them on the shoulders of a political leader instead of God. Man, if only this political party would win, or only if this man would win. We put our hopes in a thorn bush in comparison. How often do we align with a business leader or a person of wealth for our hope and our future but turn a blind eye to their wickedness and immorality to do so? How often do we lay our souls in the spiritual lives of our children, lay them bare for celebrities who love to gather people and wow them with their words and lead our children and grandchildren down to the pit of hell. And a question, as I was prepared to judge in my heart the people of Shechem, people of Jesus' day, all of a sudden God started to bring to mind all the thorn bushes and tumbleweeds I have placed my trust in over a God of a covenant. A God who didn't see heaven as something to be held on to, but humbled himself to become like his own creation, to come and die on my behalf. Not just any death, by the way, death on the cross, who endured the shame, suffered misery for me, 
so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And every two to four years, we're so easy to toss that aside. And crown a new king. I want you to show you how Jotham ends it. Verse 16, love this. Everyone's probably staring their mouth agape. Now, therefore, if you have dealt in truth and integrity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house, and have dealt with him as he deserved, for my father fought for you, risked his life, and delivered you from the hand of Midian, also beat you up, but that's okay. Verse 18, but you have risen against my father's house today and have killed his son. Seventy men on one stone have made Abimelech, the son of his maidservant, king over the men of Shechem, because he is your relative. If then you have dealt in truth and integrity with Zerubbabel in his house this day, rejoice and let him also rejoice in you. Hey, if you're doing the right thing, if this is honoring to God, be well and have a great life. Huge biblical but. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume the men of Shechem and Beth Malo. Let fire come out from the men of Shechem from Beth Malo and consume Abimelech. And Jotham escaped and fled went to bear and remained there because of Abimelech, his brother. After Jotham gives his parable and asks a question, you'd rather trust a tumbleweed over God. He says, hey, good luck. Hope you're right. If you are, great. If you're not, God be with you. And then he leaves the scene as if Jotham knows something that we don't. just when you think that maybe God has abandoned the people. You have a grim picture, a hostile takeover, parables about weird trees, people being their heads cut off on one stone, talking about wickedness and pain and evil that goes back generations, everything coming to head. For one, you begin to think maybe God's abandoned and maybe God's done. Nothing can happen. Nothing good can occur. It's just disgrace and they're finished. Look at verse 22. Judges 9, 22. Because we see the third thing. See, we had a grim picture, a hostile takeover. And now all of a sudden, just when you think God's lost, we see a divine plan. Look at verse 22. Now Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years. God let him have his day. God says, okay, I'll give you three years. You're going to think everything's great. Verse 23, then, after three years, then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. The men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech so that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might come. Their blood might be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. All of a sudden, when you think God is absent, when you think God isn't there, just sin is reigning, wickedness is ruling, culture is crazy, God's leaving, God's gone, we better go. Just when you think all of a sudden God steps in and says, okay. And God sent an evil spirit. Look at this plan of power. First thing we see in God's divine plan right there in the midst of all the muck and mire. 
a plan of power. God sent means that God dispatched it. God placed it with his bare hands. God released it. This wasn't something that God allowed. This is something that God sent. An evil spirit, and I got to tell you, smarter men and women have argued about what that evil spirit is and who it is for generations. We're not going to figure it out right here. All we know is it's submissive to God because God sent it. God sent it for a reason. God sent it that it would stir up trouble between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. God has this plan of power in the next 29 verses. I'm just going to summarize you. I'll tell you the story. Because it's filled with just more absurdities, craziness. You have a plan of God, this, this divine plan. You have a plan of power, a plan of defeat. Over the next 29 verses, you have Shechem, the men of Shechem, rising up against Abimelech. Abimelech coming up and demolishing the city, putting salt in it, not just demolishing the city, killing all the people and pouring salt in it, ruining it for generations. Not only will I not enjoy it, you won't enjoy it. No one's going to enjoy it. We're just lighting everything on fire. Abimelech goes on this murdering rampage, burning people alive in towers and then this is what happens let's jump ahead Judges chapter 9 verse 50 then Abimelech went to Thebes and he camped against Thebes and captured it but there was a strong tower in the center of the city and all the men and all the women with all the leaders of the city fled there and shut themselves in on this wooden tower. And they went up on the roof of the tower. So Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and approached the entrance of the tower to burn it with fire. Yeah, burn him alive. Verse 53, huge biblical butt right there, circle it. But a certain woman. You've been going through with judges. When that starts happening, you know God's moving. But a certain woman, right there, all cultures, going crazy. People are about to be burned alive. There's not an army. No angels. Unnamed woman. Certain woman threw an upper millstone. Three-pound rock. Certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. Hey, Generations, this tyrant is going through burning people alive. Unnamed, nameless woman on the top of a tower, three to four stories high, gets a three-pound uh, brick, rock, boop. What are the chances? You're landing that right on a Bimelech's head. Look what happened after that. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, said to him, draw your sword and kill me, so it will not be said to me a woman slew him. Remember the last guy who got killed by a woman? I wrote a song about him. Don't let that happen to me. So the young man pierced him through and he died. When the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, each departed to his home. That's it. End of the story. Just because of an unnamed woman on a tower fearing for her life, picked up a four-pound rock, threw it over the edge, landed on Abimelech's head, ended a tyrant ended a war, executed God's justice. An unnamed woman. Here's my question for you. Man, if their culture is going up in smoke, all hell's breaking loose in the world, and God uses an unnamed person 
to transform life in their day in a matter of this. If God did that then, why not with you today? If God can use a nobody back then, why can't God use a nobody today? See, I believe he can. I believe he does, and I believe he is. Last part of the story. We have a plan of power, a plan of defeat, and we have a plan of justice. Look how chapter 9 ends. Verse 56, thus. It's a word meaning, all right, here's how all this happened. Here's a summary of this entire kooky, wacky story. Thus, God did it. This was all God's plan. God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father in killing his 70 brothers. Also, God returned all the wickedness of the men of Shechem on their heads, and the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerobobal, came upon us. In this entire chapter where people probably assumed that God had abandoned them, that God had left, that God had finished, God was at work behind the scenes the entire time. In the midst of all of this madness, God had a plan. Here's my question then for you. Can the same be true for us today? I mean, people are ready to pack in California. People are ready to pack in Chino Valley. My thing, I don't think God's done. In the midst of all the madness, in the midst of the cacophony and the crazy, God is still at work. That's what Paul says. Romans 8, 28. Look what he says. Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called. And these whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Like, hey, in the midst of all the craziness, God is still in control. He's using everything for his glory and your spiritual growth. I mean, you might look at your home and think, this is bananas, I'm out. You might look at your culture and think, California's bananas, I'm out. You might look at your church and say, Brian's crazy, I'm out. Here's what I'm telling you and what Paul's telling you. God uses all. All of that for his glory and your spiritual growth. So then what do we do with it? Man, churches, pastors, myself, I'd love to stop at verse 30. Let's keep going. Verse 31, look at what Paul says then. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Man, if you believe that God uses kooky, crazy culture to do his work, to reflect his glory and change your life, you shouldn't be leaving California. You should be moving here. God's doing a work. 
You shouldn't fear political seasons. You should show up at them because God's doing a work. You don't run from your crazy family drama. Stay in the midst of it because God's doing a work. My question for you then, where do you need to trust? The grim picture of your life, the hostile takeover that culture has executed against the truth of God, where do you need to trust the rest, the mess of this culture and the mess of your life into the divine plan of God? That's the question for Judges chapter 9. Let's pray. God, as a church, we come before you now and we simply ask, God, you open our eyes and allow us to see things as you do. God, we confess to you that we're concerned. Some are concerned about their marriages, others concerned about their children, others concerned about culture, others concerned about future, some concerned about grandchildren. God, there's even some concerned about their very own lives. So God, I pray for just an instant, God, you give us faith that comes from hearing your word, confidence in your sovereign plan, God, that we might allow you to do work in the darkest, deepest, scariest, most challenging parts of our lives. God, drive it deep down to our hearts, God, that we might echo the heart of David. God, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God, we fear no evil, for you're with us. And God, if you're with us, who can stand against us? So God, give us faith in the midst of adversity. God, give us strength in the midst of struggle. God, give us boldness in the midst of darkness. That we might continue to be bright and glorified instruments of your power of salvation. Use for your glory. We pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen.